You are listening to the Journey to Impact Fireside Chat Series with Gino Borges, curator of the Poetry of Impact, a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, this is Gino Borges. I'm here with Jesse Fink, a venture philanthropist who has dedicated the past two decades to working on solutions to climate change and other environmental issues. Jesse began his business career as a forest and land manager for Georgia Pacific, later joined Jay Walker at Walker Digital, where he co-created and became founding CEO of Priceline.com. Jesse and his wife, Betsy, became pioneers in the field of impact investing, providing funding and strategic advice to mission-driven entrepreneurs, established the Fink Family Foundation, which focuses on solving issues of the environment, food systems, and climate change resiliency. Lastly, Jesse co-founded Mission Point Capital Partners, a private investment firm focused on financing solutions to climate change and other environmental issues. Welcome, Jesse. Thank you, Gina. It's great to have you here. Um, you're very respected in the field, and I know that you were in the field of impact investing before it was called impact investing. And one of my favorite questions to ask people, and a lot of people ask me this, a similar question when I share my life story is, at what moment, at what sort of intersection did it become clear to you that um, not only did you want to live intentionally, but you also had the opportunity to actually invest intentionally as well? Great. Well, I, I always knew I wanted to live intentionally. Um, that's why I went to forestry college and started my career in the environment. But it wasn't until um, the success that we had at Priceline that gave me the opportunity to have the financial means to uh, put aligned with my values and how I, I wanted to live. And uh, I was all of 42 years old at that point in time. And uh, it really was an opportunity to align all different aspects of my life. And sort of take us to that moment of, um, you know, I mean, people uh, probably assume that, um, that that's all positive to actually have a material, um, you know, abundant moment. But there's also a certain amount of an emotional uh, continuum and range that one needs to go through or just is compelled and forced to actually go into. Uh, one of uh, varying trust issues like what to do next, um, uh, you know, some honor, guilt, and all, and, and so forth. So, sort of take me back to how you and Betsy. I mean, you guys went from forestry school to being sort of, uh, you know, part of the professional workforce, did well. But then, I mean, there's a moment in your life where it became disproportionately well, um, you know, and all of a sudden there's a public recognition of that disproportionate wealth. And sort of take me through that moment where, I mean, all of a sudden you and Betsy realized like, wow, we are living in a different world now as a result of this moment. Right. Well, um, I grew up, my parents were school teachers. And so I grew up with middle-class values. They were 
part of the depression era. And so we learned how to share and be um, conserve everything we can. Um, when the opportunity happened at Priceline, Priceline went public. And when a company goes public, it's public. And um, so we are private people. And that was a, a challenging time when everybody in our town and, and beyond got a sense of what I was up to for the last three or four years as we were creating Priceline when it actually uh, went public, did the IPO and then information was there. Our concern was privacy. Uh, uh, concern was being young and figuring out uh, how do we spend the rest of our life. And our biggest concern is how do we raise wonderful children to be wonderful adults. And uh, I think that's the area that that we focused on early on. And I mean, there's actually, this is a really sort of unique time in terms of um, just from a historical sense, there's actually been no other time in economic history where people younger and younger are actually becoming, uh, you know, most wealth has been sort of intergenerational passed on or you were Sam Walton's age at uh, you know, 60, 70 years old, because most wealth has been tied to space and time, meaning that if you started a oil refinery, you needed to start another oil refinery. And so there's certain type of frictional constraints. But I mean, the sort of this tech area, um, and I mean, you were very early on, and now we're actually seeing, since, since that period of time, we're actually seeing even younger people come come into enormous sums of wealth, like in their 20s. And there's a big difference between being in your 40s and being in your 20s and sort of coming across this wealth. I mean, where do you sort of see it as sort of a, a cultural moment, um, not only in terms of sort of responsibility, but what's it say about us as a culture at large who have just fundamentally shifted the dynamics of wealth in our culture? And then how does that sort of uh, play out in terms of you stepping back and saying, wow, this is an opportunity as well? And and I mean, have you been instrumental? Have people reached out to you, you know, some of these younger people who have had these kinds of moments? Right. You're, you're frozen, Gino, for a second. There you go. How's that? Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, so it, it, that's a great question. And I think this week um, I had the opportunity to talk to three different groups of people who all were uh, about to have a, a different change of life from um, selling their business and wondering what they should do next to exiting uh, as a high profile uh, um, CEO and wondering what to do next um, to someone else who exited recently and has already set up what they're doing next. So it's a, it's a great opportunity and I'm thrilled when people seek me out because if they're taking the time to seek me out, then obviously they see something in the, the journey that Betsy and I went through that they feel like they can learn from. Um, the fact that it's happening younger and younger um, is probably very challenging for a 30-year-old uh, or younger to not have had the experience of uh, of not having wealth before and all of a sudden to be put into that situation. You know, for us, I had worked for 20 years and then all of a sudden we, we have a, a mentor of ours who 
often says it's a meteor that hits when there is a wealth <laughs> event that whether yeah. it's um, you're a first generation and you created the wealth or if you are an inheritor of the wealth, when that hits, there is a meteor. And how do you catch that meteor? And so I, I love visuals. And so I imagine running around with a catcher's mitt and saying, you know, how do I catch this? How do I be prepared? And that's what uh, Betsy and I did. We, we took it very seriously and surrounded ourselves. At that point, we created a wisdom council of folks who had been around um, successful entrepreneurs and wealth holders. And they were amazingly valuable to us to help us understand how to stay grounded, how to uh, utilize our various different forms of assets and capital that we had so that we can have a, a fulfilling and, and harmonious life. Can you take me a little bit about um, sort of the, so the demographic makeup, uh, I mean, of that wisdom council, it was it merely just other business people that were successful or was there sort of like, you know, theologians, um, I mean, sociologists, uh, psychologists in it, um, you know, justice folks. I'm just sort of curious on sort of the, the range of uh, vantage points that I mean, you were receiving. Right. Uh, I would say none of them were, uh, were us, were peer group or an older peer group. They all were professionals, service professionals. Mm -hmm. So a CFO for a large private wealth organization, um, uh, someone who ran a family office of a seven generation, very successful from the family dynamics aspect of it. Um, a trust and estate attorney who had transformed himself incredibly successful as a, a philosopher. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, and um, our uh, gentleman who was our accountant, but actually was a wise and mentor. So um, someone who had an expertise in uh, philanthropic activities. Yeah. So they, they were older uh, than us, and but they brought, and they were service professionals, and they brought experience of working with other families um, and professionals in the field. Yeah. So is that what, you know, my impression, Jesse, uh, you know, as I've talked with you a little bit in the past and read through your materials, is that you have a very sincere uh, desire to pull in various forms of capital. Um, and you've made it pretty clear um, that that part of your relevancy in, I mean, this particular phase of life is really investing in people um, and really trusting and, and early ideas that, I mean, you think you can catalyze. Can you walk me through where sort of that desire for integration comes from? And then what does sort of uh, these different pots of sort of capital look like? So, I mean, we sort of have this, um, you know, obviously the financial capital has sort of different forms to it, but let's talk about all of the things that go around your commitment before your, uh, perhaps maybe not even before, but as a whole, like when, when you're looking forward and to say, I'm going to step into this and I'm going to say yes to this, what is it that you're looking to bring? What is it that you're looking to catalyze? And maybe you can actually give us an example of something that you think like, gosh, I wish if I had six of these examples in my life, then I know that I have uh, really done my job in terms of being able to connect all the dots. Right. 
Okay. Well, um, again, our mentor used the term that there are five forms of capital and, uh, and how to utilize those five forms of capital um, will lead to a more complete outcome. Um, the fact that we're having this conversation is the first form of capital is financial capital. I uh, don't think that without the financial capital that uh, I would have had the experience and the opportunity to learn and journey and do everything we did. Um, the second form of capital is intellectual capital. And that's something that we spend a lot of time on uh, where we're actually doing the work and uh, doing the research ourselves and, and spend, you know, just investing in ourselves from that aspect of it. Social capital, the third form, just utilizing your networks, which we all do uh, in various different ways. And um, the, the fourth is the human capital where I've made a real effort to invest in human capital have since since the very beginning of this um, and and spending time with people and uh, growing people and mentoring people and really learning from people. Um, and the last is the spiritual capital, which to me is really important in understanding why are we doing what we're doing. So an example, uh, I would say that really puts all of these pieces together is what we did um, as an organization in the search to find solutions to food waste and the creation of refit. Um, it's something that I am so proud of. And I feel like in addition to what we created at Priceline 20 years ago in the IPO, I believe what was created with refit and what it can do is, uh, is another uh, very important career. Um, mm. I'm just thrilled about it. And, and I think what, what refed can do to solve the climate issue and food injustice issue is huge. So the quick of it is we had um, a family office and we had a foundation and we were really very fortunate to have wonderful team with us. And so Mark's really been our partner for 20 years and has run uh, Mission Point Capital Partners, Mission Point Partners and all kinds of aspects of our life and is a uh, just an incredibly thoughtful, wise investor and, and real friend and partner. And Joan Briggs was running our foundation at the time. And our, our foundation focused on environmental solutions and sustainable agriculture that led to agriculture, which led to food waste and the recognition that there wasn't a roadmap there. If someone was interested in food waste solutions, there wasn't a place that they could go to see what are the problems in food waste and then what are the solutions and where could they invest? And we did it with our lens on as being a philanthropist and investors. So what we hope to do is to create a roadmap through Refed that then visually people can look at it and understand that food waste is a huge problem related to climate change and emissions and other environmental issues but it's a solvable problem and it's solvable through philanthropic efforts, uh, consumer awareness, and uh, the whole field that we, we talk about of impact investing. There's a huge opportunity to make investments in solutions to food waste. So that was an area where we started it. We, uh, wonderful woman, Sarah Barrett, 
ran that project for us with Adam Ryan. And we went, we were lucky enough to bring other uh, funders with us. And so we, we brought other funders to get other voices around the table. We created an, a, an advisory council of about 40 individuals who were all in the food sector. And from that, we were able to launch the refed uh, food waste roadmap. And that launched about four years ago. And since then, Refed has become a freestanding nonprofit, um, has an amazing staff that's led by Dana Gunders, who you yeah. know. And, um, and it really is, is set now uh, as more and more climate funders are recognizing that there are solutions in food waste. Refed is really positioned uh, to be the ability to educate people and where they can put their uh, investment dollars to work. So was there something in your past that led to like, this is crazy that uh, this much food is actually being waste? Like, I mean, where's the visceral moment in Jesse's life where it's like, this is crazy. Like uh, you're walking by a restaurant with your wife, Betsy, and you see, you know, two, two big baskets of unopened lettuce in the, in the, you know, in the, see in the trash, or, um, you know, you have a farm yourself and you realize that uh, you realize that, wow, the grocery stores aren't interested in all of our food. So here we are, we're dumping a lot of our food. And I speak personally to this. So I grew up in California on a farm as well. And as a kid, we, we grew tomatoes. Um, uh, we had like hundreds and hundreds of acres of tomatoes. And after they would harvest, the fields would still be completely red. Um, and I'd ask my dad about why, like, why didn't they pick all these tomatoes? And it's because he goes, well, because they're just looking for the right kind of tomato. Um, and so, I mean, at, you know, I was, I grew up with this idea that there was a particular aesthetic to food that only a certain type of food equaled quality food. Um, so I have that vantage point of actually being on the ground and just seeing tons and tons of tomatoes, uh, being left and just sort of dissed under, I wonder where, where that moment was for you, where it's like, I think we can do something here. Right. Well, <clears throat> I'll say this, the moment really for me was with the moment that Betsy said that. Um, so <laughs> we, we've, we've been partners now for 40 years. We've married for 38 years. And, and, I, and it's just a wonderful partnership between the two of us. We each have unique skills that we bring to the table. And the food waste and the food waste journey was really Betsy's vision. Um, we were interested in agriculture and so Betsy created a farm called Millstone Farm in our town in Wilton, Connecticut. And we did amazing things on the farm. And she was the farmer. I was, actually had the opportunity to just go and visit and take walks on the farm and bring people <laughs> out there. But she was, she was doing the work with a wonderful team that she had. And through that farm and realizing how difficult it was to grow healthy produce, um, part of what Betsy would do is go to the local markets and drop off our lettuce or drop off our eggs. And as she would go in the back door, she'd look in the dumpster and just see pallets um, and racks of broccoli and potatoes and sweet potatoes and everything else. And so that actually was an awareness that there was a lot of food waste that was going out the back door from supermarkets. At the same time on our farm, uh, we, did a, we did gleaning um, which is a gleaning is where you let people, after you've done your mm -hmm. harvest, you let other people come in. So we did gleaning on our farm and we started a program 
or helped fund a program here on Martha's Vineyard, where I'm right now, that was getting the island to glean from farmers who had already gotten everything out of the farm that was sellable. So I think the aha moment for Betsy was, hey, this is really a big issue. Um, people are putting a lot more time and effort into growing food and so much is going to waste. And then I think for us, it was like, well, we've done all these things where we've done it on our own property. We have funded a lot of nonprofits, both locally and uh, nationally. What's missing? What can we do as, as a family that can actually accelerate or amplify the problems and the solutions to food waste? Hmm. And where, and just briefly, like where, if you had to identify the huge sort of, and I'm guessing it's very systemic. So, and I'm guessing the, um, the overall infrastructure of how food gets distributed from, from land to mouth is extremely complicated and has a lot of probably um, sort of, how would I say this sort of um, people vested in not wanting to change it as well. But I mean, where is like, I mean, if somebody's just saying like, wow, I didn't even realize that that much food was being wasted. Why, why is that much food being wasted? Like, I mean, if you had to sort of sum it up and put it in, a, in an essence ball, I mean, how would you answer somebody's like question? Why is so much food being wasted? Right. Um, well, one of the things I'll say is stay tuned because in about four months, ReFed will be releasing the next version of the roadmap, which is really current information as to uh, what has changed in the five years since the first roadmap was done. Yeah. But it, it is throughout the whole supply chain. Um, it's at the farm, um, through processing, through transportation, at the retailer, at the restaurant, when the restaurants were open, and at, at the household. So it was really a, across all of those. But I will. Uh, make one point. Um, for 20 years, I've been involved in the energy sector too. And um, what I have felt with food waste is that there is an opportunity to accelerate what's happened in this transition to a low carbon economy and energy. There is happening as a transition to a less wasteful food economy. And the difference that I feel is that the food businesses are interested in reducing waste. Um, whereas the energy companies initially were not. And so it took a lot of, you know, scrapping your way up if you were an entrepreneur to create a solar developer or wind or energy efficiency, because the utilities were not ready for change. The food businesses are welcoming that and they, they're very supportive uh, around the table at Refed, figuring out what, what else can happen. What I would say is that we have a very efficient food system, but we don't have a, an effective food system. So it's very efficient that you can grow lettuce in Salinas, California, and it could be here in four days in the East Coast and pretty inexpensive. But it's not all that effective if you think about the amount of water that was used and the transportation and the and the waste along the way and the fact that 40% of food in aggregate gets wasted in this country. So, uh, and I actually think what happened with COVID and the disruption of the food supply chain, which we all saw playing out on TV when, you know, whether it was pork or it was chickens. And you, so you saw the supply chain breaking and then you saw on the result um, just large amounts of people going to food banks who, you know, weren't, weren't doing that before. That shown a spotlight 
on the fragility of the food supply chain. Yeah. And there are a lot of really smart people from the food sector, from food businesses, from the investment community, from policy people who are looking to see how the food sector uh, and the supply chain could be more resilient. So we don't have the hiccups like we had before. So I, I'm gonna sound crazily romantic here, Jesse, and ask you this question, but I think it's pretty, pretty evident to you that, I mean, obviously after World War II, there's been an, a significant disconnection and ongoing disconnection with the natural world. And so, uh, which includes food in terms of, here, here it is, the most intimate part of our body, our mouth, and we sort of anonymously and impersonally and often un, uh, not, not without any mindfulness, just put it in our mouth as if it's something like, as if we're at the keyboard working on the computer. I'm wondering when, when you look at sort of this whole picture, like what level of uh, environmental reconnection, nature reconnection, education, um, integration needs to be a part of this puzzle as opposed to just sort of the technocratic uh, redesign of systems? Because even if you have redesign of systems and yet it's sort of this impersonal alienated input that people are still putting in their mouth, um, just sort of wondering where sort of the full integration of like education comes in, like kids early on so that kids actually know where food's coming from and what actually food can potentially mean. Right. Well, I, I will say this in the, even in the 15 years or so that we've gotten deeper into agriculture and food systems, the awareness uh, is so much greater as to where does food come from, healthy, organic, local, uh, you know, whatever terms people want to use. The yeah. consumer is asking for it. Um, the students are learning about it in school. There's been a, a real heightened awareness about that. And I think that that's huge. When we first started our farm, everything was grown organic and we would bring the tomatoes and other uh, vegetables to the markets and no two looked alike. And the, <laughs> you know, after a month or so, we just realized that the, the uh, supermarkets just didn't, they didn't know how to accept uh, organic food. They liked our eggs and they liked lettuce that had 50 varieties of lettuce, but they couldn't handle that. That's changed so much. Just the fact that people understand that organic's not all not going to look the same. And now in the food waste area, there are some really great companies that are taking uh, food that would have been second, that maybe wasn't as pretty, wasn't consistent, but is really wonderful food. And they're yeah. creating markets for that. Um, this whole, and this whole concept of upcycled food and just figuring out how else you can use food that isn't exactly perfect like we were used to. So the consumer awareness is a really important part of it. That came out in the refed roadmap. Mm -hmm. um, I, I sort of have a view on that, that I actually feel there's an opportunity for the food businesses to use uh, consumer awareness to bring their customers up to an enlightenment about, mm. about food and food waste. Mm -hmm. It would cost so much money to have a nonprofit uh, go out there and try yeah. to change people's behavior, but just get a couple of large retailers, which are, are out there now, Walmart and Kroger, for example, really creating that awareness for their customers and understanding that all the food doesn't have to be perfect and that waste is really important. So I do think there's an opportunity here for the food businesses, for restaurants, for colleges, you know, when they go back 
um, to be able to have that awareness, but not necessarily have it to be a public service, but just incorporate it into the business practices. Yeah. How do we do that? Like, I totally get it in terms of like, I mean, the top 20% of America um, like gets that. Um, and the top 20% of America has access to that, the access to the farmer's market. But when like you look at just for, at it from a justice angle and sort of an environmental justice angle, more and more people are moving to urban areas, which is essentially another way of saying that there's gonna be less and less connection to the natural world as these demographic, you know, you know these demographic shifts. It's clear that certain school districts are more resourceful than others. It's clear that certain groups of parents want certain things for their kids. It seems like we're really um, sort of really at this crust and you talked about it. The crust of civilization is very fragile as you just talked about in terms of where like the meat production just gets rattled just slightly and all of a sudden and during COVID you see long lines at the food bank. I still think that there's something at an infrastructure level that we may, um, and it'd be interesting to see how your team's doing this, but how do you get down into sort of seeing life from the vantage point of um, uh, not the world of you and me, uh, and, and not the world of the top 20% that essentially are servicing the world of capital in some capacity? Right, no, that's a great question. I think one of the things that Betsy and I have done pretty consistently is finding a way in our portfolio of activities to be doing things that are at a local level, yeah. at a community level. Mm -hmm. um, we're doing it here in Martha's Vineyard. We've done it in Colorado where we spend the winters, in Connecticut where we had the farm and raised our family. We did it in a, in a large way. Um, we've done it extending into Harlem um, and, and supporting a great organization called Harlem Grown and spending the time with Mr. Tony, as he likes yeah. to be called in Harlem Grown, and understanding what life is is like for um, for families that actually don't even have a home. They don't have a consistent home. And so what Mr. Tony did and continues to do with Harlem Grown is to actually educate um, the third graders and fifth graders on healthy eating, uh, on composting, on recycling. Mm -hmm. And so it's happening at the grassroots level. And I think for Betsy and I, the more time we can put our ears to the ground and work with people and listen and observe, the, the better we will be to figure out, is there a systemic solution? Is there a national solution? So we go back and forth, we'll, we'll work locally, and then we'll figure out how that can be scaled uh, nationally, which is what we did with Refed, but then we're going to say, well, this is what Refed with. Let's go back locally and let's stress test if these great ideas and great <laughs> solutions can actually happen. We're doing doing that right here in Martha's Vineyard, where um, composting and collecting food from restaurants and supermarkets is an important part. It, it they started doing it here, but there was it just wasn't happening as quickly. So Betsy and I bought a pickup truck for the local group, the Island Grown Initiative. And we bought this really ugly looking tumbler that uh, got <laughs> used, uh, you know, it was like 30 years old and got transported here. And it's a tumbler that's taking the food waste and mixing it with cardboard. And yeah. what's coming out at the other end is the beginning of compost. It still has to cure. So I think for us, this, the, the strategy of 
um, having a problem that we're interested in, looking at the solutions, and then working with the local groups, and then actually learning as much as you can. Um, I'm not sure I directly answered about how to understand the situation of everybody else, but I feel like that's what we're committed to do. Yeah, I, I see. I think you did it in a way that um, I've been striving to myself. It's been challenging, but this dialectical dance between the global initiative and the local touch, because it's a local touch that actually keeps the referent, um, it keeps you in close contact with the referent. So then you can actually um, sensorially actually see whether these ideas are actually working or like you call it sort of stress testing. Um, and I think that's really a valuable, like I don't find that in, in most people I talk to are, we're all working on a global scale, right? And, it, and it's very easy to forget about our local uh, scene as a potential sort of uh, incubator or a pilot for, for us to sort of stay in touch with, with the varied lifestyles that are around us. I, uh, I do want to get into, um, you, you've been at the forefront of really connecting uh, money to climate resiliency initiatives and finance. And I wanna start off, before we go into sort of the technical aspects of this, I wanna talk to you about like, there has to be, if somebody like yourself has been thinking about this for 10 to 20 years, um, there has to be some element of grieving that has take that that you have been doing and Brit that you've had to practice, and sort of take us through what you feel is sort of being lost, um, and then yet at the same time, how do you sort of stay stay rooted and grounded enough to say we can still do this, guys? Uh, you know, I mean, we can still do this, world and fellow citizens, like. Take us through also the necessity for to grieve it, and let's and let's not pretend that something's not being lost. And I really want to start off with this notion of loss in connection with climate action, and then from there, let me know how and let our listeners know from that growth and from that inner experiences how how that's led you into this scene and how it's and how you're moving your energy into this particular scene well i mean that's a it's a great question um because we are grieving you know the the earth as we know it is dying uh unfortunately um and i would say that Betsy feels it more than me. Betsy mm -hmm. feels it for the species, uh, for the, the birds and the insects and the animals and the plants that are you know, dying back at rates that we've never seen before. And, and her focus is biodiversity, um, has been, and she's actually spending a lot more time right now on the ground, similar to what she did with food waste, doing with bio, biodiversity. And that gives you a reason for hope. Um, I would say when we started doing this 20 years ago, there was almost like there was this countdown clock of, hey, everybody, we need to make these changes and bend the curve now. We only have <laughs> yeah. 20 years or 10 years or five years. And every five years, it's like, you know, we didn't really do that. So are, are we running out of time or are we ex extending the clock? Um, and I think like a lot of other people, and I've made such great friends in these 20 years of similar people who 
are using their philanthropic assets and their investment assets and their social capital of their networks to do everything they possibly can to bend the curve of climate change. We were focused early on uh, as a family office, a family and our investments in the transition to the low carbon economy, which meant climate change mitigation. The investments we made were all about taking, reducing the amount of carbon that was being emitted and doing anything you can to even reduce what was there. And somewhere along the line, and I think it was when the Waxman-Markey bill didn't get passed, and, uh, and I realized, as did all of our peers, like, okay, we can't keep doing exactly what we're doing. And at that point, I shifted and, and expanded my focus to resiliency. So resiliency and adaptation. I still want to focus on mitigation, but prior to that, people didn't want to talk about adaptation and resiliency because they felt like um, then everyone would take their eye off the ball of reducing emissions. Um, I felt like you have to do that. The, you know, the world is changing. We actually need to think about what's happening with hurricanes and wildfires and all that. And great folks like the Rockefeller Foundation and others um, you know, took it up in, in a big way. So, so adaptation and resiliency are incredibly important um, and they really get down to the, the local level. How, how do you keep going? You know, how do we all keep going um, when it's hard to know whether it's, it's making a difference mm -hmm. in some ways? Um, and I think that that's why maybe doing some things at a local level are a way that if you have a portfolio of activities and one of those portfolios, which it has been for us, is reducing global climate change to affect people 50 years, can you have another uh, aspect of your time portfolio that says, you know what, I'm gonna actually go help uh, these third graders or preschool kids right now because I can make their life different and better any way I can. Uh, and actually uh, it was the wisdom of, of my son Drew uh, on a walk that we took years ago. So, you know, dad, you ought to think about your your activities as a portfolio um, because the, for me, it's the hands-on service. That's what gives me the great gratification. I was focused on the biggest issue out there and yeah. like everybody else, we did everything we can. You don't even know if you're successful or not successful because you're part of this big initiative. When you do something local, when you touch a person, when you yeah. mentor somebody, when you uh, are able to feed a, a family or help a family, um, there's just actually, that's what recharges me to enable to really continue to take on what I think are these most important daunting problems. Mm. And so, um, I mean, you mentioned this idea of um, resiliency and mitigation. That's basically an acknowledgement that um, essentially, uh, from my understanding, is an acknowledgement that like, okay, the world um, climate has changed our scene and we have to accept that amount of change at bare minimum. And that's going to systemically um, disrupt lives and ecological landscape. So we have to acknowledge that essentially. And, 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 then, and, then, there's, and then there's that other level of the long-term where it's like, okay, now we're focused on um, 
making sure that these systemic changes don't just become even more, or uh, systemic disruptions don't become even more volatile uh, as well. Curious about how, how you're sort of looking at uh, climate tech to actually, and climate technology um, as part of that dance between carbon reduction and, and resiliency and is, is it all starting to sort of shape up as like, we're, uh, are, are we all starting to work on the same pile and we are, are, are we pushing it all forward? I mean, it does feel like compared to five or 10 years ago, and um, you know, it, it does seem like there is, the universe seems to have a natural coherency to, and there's some type of organizational uh, energy that's taking place right now. And, and I'm not saying that there's somebody there with a, you know, a puppet master doing it, but there seems to be something going on. I mean, do you feel it on your end? Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. Uh, probably about 10 years ago, um, I don't know if we came up with the term or found the term, but environmental big data. And I was hot to trot on environmental big data. You know, uh -huh. then it was like everything was big data. And I said, well, what are we doing about environmental big data? How do we use technology and data to solve environmental issues? And uh, at Priceline, you know, yes, it was a technology company, but it was business model innovation. And at Walker Digital, it was an intellectual property think tank that was looking at the future and how to use technology and business models. Uh, in, again, this was 20 years ago, but to go from the analog world to the digital world. I am really encouraged by what I see. I'm encouraged by what the colleges are doing. I'm encouraged by the young students in college who are interested in using their engineering uh, background to do good things. Um, I'm encouraged by the investors who are supporting the uh, new companies that are happening. In, in our Mission Point portfolio, we have companies that are using technology um, that are focused on resilience, using technology so that you can monitor stormwater and be able to make sure that you're not putting overflow, using technology to do controlled environment agriculture. So you're growing things in a controlled environment, recognizing that, uh, you know, crazy weather that we're having, it's, it's, I mean, obviously there's always a need for growing outside, but it's hard to control the volatility of the weather. Controlled environment agriculture is a, is a place to do that. So there is a huge opportunity uh, of doing it. It's and economically, it will pay off for entrepreneurs and investors that are doing it. It'll pay off for consumers. So it, it's really at a point where I think, and and actually, I went back to business school because I studied the environment and I felt like there needs to be an alignment between the environment and business. And that's that's what I've teed up my whole life to do. <laughs> and here you are. And here we are. Yeah. And. <laughs> The exciting thing is it's it's here. It's just the opportunities of investing in the future for energy efficiency and food efficiency and climate resiliency and and green buildings and all you know things that you're involved in. Yeah. So huge, huge opportunity. And I'm seeing uh, young folks and mid-career people want to do something different. They want to use whatever they did in in bond trading on Wall Street <laughs> derivatives. Hey, how can I turn that around and use it in, in a positive way? So I'm very upbeat about the, the interest from individuals. It's 
you need, uh, in our country, you need a federal government that is supporting that. And, um, and that would be helpful. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's see, with that in mind, uh, we're, we're actually coming close to um, sort of rounding out our conversation. Is there any last words that, um, or something that came up uh, for you that uh, you weren't able to express or s something that you're working on currently that um, that's part of your journey or that you're viewing as sort of the next step that you would sort of like to share with uh, people as we phase our, our conversation out here? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I guess what I would say is that part of my next journey is how do I go from a owner operator, which is what I've done uh, pretty much my whole career, to being more of a patron, advisor, um, uh, inspiration person, whatever you want to call it. Um, how can I continue to feel like I'm, I have a purpose, but it maybe won't be from my own activities. It'll be more and more from supporting people. And, and actually just even, as I mentioned earlier, the conversations that I've had with folks who want to do similar type of work that we've done at Mission Point and done with the Family Foundation, it's an opportunity to help encourage them and even give them some maybe wisdom of, of things to avoid. So that is a, is a piece for me. Um, and I also, uh, we're getting a four by four sprinter van converted for us. And I, I want to go on the road. I just want to go on the road and I want to talk to people everywhere and understand what is it like to not have access to fresh food, to not have water. And is there something again, that, that Betsy and I can do as we're traveling through Arizona and Utah and New Mexico, if we come across uh, um, an entrepreneur, whether it's a nonprofit entrepreneur or for-profit, there's something that they're doing that's wonderful. How can I amplify? How can I be a megaphone? How can I connect them to other people doing things all over? And while it's not in itself going to change global climate change, and again, that's another yeah. part of me, the satisfaction I think that we'll have knowing that we were able to be patrons and be supportive of mm. uh, folks on the ground who are so well-intended that the ripple effect of our activities, um, I think will be very gratifying for us. Mm. For sure, thank you so much. Um, a book that you may wanna have in that Dodge, uh, in that Sprinter van is Robert Persig's uh, Zen on the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I don't know if you ever read that, but. Um, Right. That's a fun book to have on a road trip like that. Yeah, thank you. That I will make sure that we do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm Gino Borges, and we are here with Jesse Fink. Thank you so much, Jesse, for um, sharing your journey, your insights, and thoughts of where, where you're at. And uh, you have a very clear knack on connecting so many dots, and it's really a blessing um, for you to be able to share this, uh, because as we know, and I think toward the end of the conversation, we really got at this. And as much as it's easy to feel dire in the midst of sort of media saturation and how the news is framed, there is a certain amount of benevolence and there is a certain amount of intentionality that's yearning to express itself amongst the collective. And, and to stay close and attuned to that is, um, is what makes aliveness possible. And I mean, it keeps hope alive. So, I mean, thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Well, thank you for doing what you're doing. I, it was fun to do this, and I think you're doing great work. 
Thanks again. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.